This is the World in Brief from the Economist. Our top stories. America said it was likely that Russians, quote, all the way up the chain of command were responsible for war crimes in Ukraine. Beth Van Skak, the State Department's war crimes monitor, called the situation a, quote, new Nuremberg moment and said Russian troops had probably committed war crimes in, quote, every region where they had been deployed. Reports of Ukrainian soldiers summarily executing Russians were also being investigated, she said. Saudi Arabia's energy minister denied rumors that OPEC Plus is considering raising output at its meeting early next month. After the Wall Street Journal reported that the cartel and its allies might increase production by 500,000 barrels a day, oil prices shed 6% before rebounding. Last month, OPEC Plus agreed to cut output by 2 million barrels per day. Ukraine came close to nuclear disaster as shells hit near reactors and radioactive waste storage facilities at the Zaporizhia power plant on the weekend, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Russia and Ukraine blamed each other for the attack on the facility, which is in Russian-controlled territory. Volodymyr Zelensky said that Russian forces launched almost 400 strikes on eastern Ukraine on Sunday. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said that, quote, ground forces could be used in an incursion into Kurdish-controlled Syria in retaliation for a deadly attack in Gaziantep, a Turkish province. Mortar shells fired from northern Syria on Monday killed two people. Cross-border tensions escalated after Turkish air raids on Kurdish militants in Syria on Sunday in response to a bomb attack in Istanbul last week. A shallow 5.6-magnitude earthquake hit Java, Indonesia's most populated island, on Monday, killing at least 162 people and injuring hundreds more. Dozens of buildings were reduced to rubble in the densely populated Chanjur region, which is 75 kilometers southeast of Jakarta, the capital. People were evacuated amid a risk of landslides. Two Estonian men were arrested and indicted by American prosecutors for allegedly defrauding investors of $575 million in a crypto Ponzi scheme. According to the indictment, the men charged customers for a share of profits from a non-existent crypto mining operation. The defendants, quote, capitalized on both the allure of cryptocurrency and the mystery surrounding cryptocurrency mining, said prosecutors. The football associations of seven European countries told their captains not to wear, quote, one-love armbands promoting sexual equality at the World Cup in Qatar. Players had been prepared to pay fines for doing so, but FIFA, football's governing body, threatened yellow cards. Gay sex is illegal in Qatar. The tournament opened on Sunday with a 2-0 drubbing of the host country by Ecuador. And fact of the day, 37%. The share of international sporting events hosted by autocracies since 2012. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Kamala Harris showboats in the Philippines. America's vice president is in the Philippines. After meeting on Monday with the country's president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., on Tuesday, Kamala Harris will visit Palawan, an island on the front line of a struggle for maritime dominance. It is to the west and north of Palawan that America's Navy conducts freedom of navigation missions around the disputed South China Sea, most of which China claims as its own. 
China and the Philippines also squabble over fishing and oil and gas rights within the 200 nautical mile Philippine Exclusive Economic Zone. To manage the Chinese Navy, Coast Guard, and fishing fleet without overly riling it, the Philippines deploy its civilian Coast Guard rather than its rather feeble Navy. Ms. Harris's visit will include a spell aboard such a Philippine boat, albeit safely outside waters claimed by China. That is intended to communicate America's readiness to help the Philippines defend itself from armed attack. China, irked by such comments, may find a way to signal its disapproval from Ms. Harris's showboating. Europe's economies brace for a fall. There is a bout of optimism around the EU economies these days. Quarterly GDP figures released last week were not as bad as expected. Employment continued to grow and, crucially, energy prices on wholesale markets have come down from their summer highs. On Tuesday, the OECD, an intergovernmental research body, will add its assessment of Europe's economic outlook. The elation may be premature. Energy prices have fallen but remain high, straining businesses that have ticked along thanks to a post-pandemic economic rebound. Long-term contracts with gas and electricity suppliers have cushioned the blow this year, but in 2023, the full effect of energy price rises will be felt. A second worry is the hit to the incomes of European households. A post-pandemic cushion of savings buoyed consumption and the risk of unemployment remains low, but that may not last either. The billions of euros Europe's government have dispensed to firms and households may not prevent Europe from tumbling into recession. Iranians continue their lethal protest. Death has galvanized protest for more than two months in Iran. Unrest began in mid-September when Masa Amini, a young woman detained by the morality police, died in custody. Whenever protests seemed to ebb, more killings sent people back to the streets. So it was in recent days after Kian Pirfalak, a nine-year-old boy, was shot by security forces. His funeral drew large crowds. The regime has arrested thousands and issued a handful of death sentences. In the past week, it detained two actresses who removed their headscarves in public, but it has not been able to stop the scattered, leaderless unrest. There have been periodic strikes across the country, including in Tehran's famed bazaar. Before their opening World Cup match against England on Monday, Iran's team refused to sing the national anthem. Hassan Hajsafi, the captain, has already said he, quote, sympathizes with the protesters. An act of defiance on the world's biggest stage. Cyril Ramaphosa visits Britain. King Charles III will host his first state visit as Britain's monarch on Tuesday. It will offer his guest, Cyril Ramaphosa, South Africa's president, welcome respite from politics at home. For on Tuesday, Mr. Ramaphosa will also learn how many nominations he has received to continue leading South Africa's ruling African National Congress, ahead of a vote at the party's national conference next month. Although he is expected to have a solid lead over his rivals, the ANC has acquired a habit of defenestrating sitting presidents. Mr. Ramaphosa may enjoy discussing with the king shared interests such as wildlife and the environment. His conversations with Rishi Sunak, Britain's prime minister, on Wednesday will be less convivial. Britain is unhappy with South Africa's refusal to condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Ramaphosa, in turn, is expected to press for Britain and its allies to lift sanctions on Zimbabwe and to offer Africa more aid and investment to deal with climate change. 
The History of an American Siege In American Caliph, a book published on Tuesday, Shahan Mufti, an American journalist, tells the extraordinary and largely forgotten story of what is still the largest ever hostage-taking in America. In 1977, the Hanafis, a black Muslim group based in Washington, D.C., took nearly 150 people hostage in three buildings near the White House. The siege, masterminded by Hamas Abdul Khalis, who styled himself as an American caliph or leader of America's Muslims, was intended to stop the release of a film Hanafis considered blasphemous and as revenge for the murder of several members of Khalis's family by the Nation of Islam, a rival group. Two hostages died. Mr. Mufti weaves wider historical events into his story, such as Malcolm X's assassination and new laws that facilitated Muslim immigration to America. These elements supply the rich context of a saga that builds intention until the last gripping moments. The reader is left wondering how this extraordinary tale could have been neglected for so long. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 hours GMT on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Tuesday. The French novel Les Liaisons Dangereuses was remade as a teenage movie drama in 1999 with which title? Monday. Blood, Grey, and Fox are all followed by which suffix? Finally, here's the quote of the day from Isaac Singer. We must believe in free will. We have no choice. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download the Economist app to start listening.